Welcome to One of One, a new show from Soika, the curated NFT photography marketplace. Each week, we bring you conversations with artists and personalities from the Web3 space. This is your host, Pam Voth. Welcome to One of One from Soika, the curated NFT photography marketplace. Today, I'm talking with Tyler's Journey, an award-winning photographer featured by National Geographic. He's based in downtown Toronto, where he's a visual storyteller and time-lapse cinematographer, specializing in vibrant and intimate night photography, cityscapes, and street photography. Welcome, Tyler, and thanks for being here. Awesome. So happy to be here with you. Thank you so much for doing this interview with me. Yeah, for sure. And as I was noticing, uh, you're not necessarily in Toronto right now, right? Where are you? Um, I'm in Istanbul, Turkey right now, as of the last about, I've been here for about a week now. So I arrived about a week ago. I'm currently traveling right now for my photography. Awesome. How's the jet lag? <laughs> uh, it's getting better. I'm actually kind of got over it now after about a week. So yeah, I'll basically be traveling for the next year for photography, hopefully creating collections kind of everywhere I go. So that's kind of why I'm in Istanbul at the moment. <laughs> That's awesome. What a great place to be based out of. I've met so many photographers from Turkey, and they just are some of the most creative visual creators I've I've met. Uh, have you run into any photographers in your journey so far? Yeah, I was here last year for, I think, a period of like, I don't know, like what, seven, six or seven months last year. And I met Doric Seaman. He's an amazing portrait photographer. I met Rizajan Kumis, who's just a really famous documentary photographer from Turkey. I think everyone knows him. He has one of like the top 20 collections on OpenSea, actually, for photography. So he's a pretty well-known photographer. I really look up to him. So meeting him was really, really nice. When I first came here, I think the first, uh, might have been like the first few weeks I came here in the spring of uh, spring of 2022, I got to meet him at like an NFT gathering. We had like a bar. So yeah, I've met a lot of amazing Turkish photographers. They're all really, really, really welcoming. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I'm familiar with his work. And yeah, he's one of the tops in the space, isn't he? So I see from your work, you seem to thrive in an urban environment. I really love all the bright lights and high places that you capture. How did you get started doing that kind of photography? I would say the main thing is moving to Toronto, of course, being in a big city, being surrounded by just amazing architecture, bright lights and things like that. So I think first moving to Toronto about 10 years ago now is what like ignited my passion for shooting architecture, night city lights and things like that. Uh, before that, I guess before this 10 years, I've been photographing for since I was about 10 years old. So maybe like 26 years I've been photographing let's say before this I was shooting like landscape photography and like nature and things like this because that's what I was surrounded by I grew up in nature I was shooting some city during my travels but mostly it was a lot of landscape so coming to Toronto was kind of what really ignited my passion for night photography that on top of a uh, film I love films like things from like Blade Runner and some of like the really older films and then up to like, yeah, newer films. That's awesome. You really seem to thrive in some of the worst weather I've ever seen being photographed. I was wondering if you have any special equipment that helps you get that really tack sharp image in snowfall or rain and even the dead of night. Yeah, I would love to just tackle on a few important things. I like to immerse myself 
in the environment and not be afraid of it in any way. And I think that's what allows you to get those really, really good photographs. So I have a completely clear like plastic bag. It's called Optech. It's just like a really cheap, costs like $10 for these little Optech rain covers. I use them everywhere just to protect my gear just a little bit. I use Sony, so they're like decently in the weather, but I want to keep it protective so I don't have to think about it, right? So I cover it up in that way. I never use an umbrella. I have like a raincoat with like a hood over my head and that's it. It's just me and the environment and my camera. And I think that allows me to really immerse myself. I have a lens hood over my camera, of course, to try to avoid as much raindrops and lens as possible. I have several microfiber cloths in all pockets. I have a blower, like um, a lens blower, and you can blow the raindrops off of your lens with that. I use that in combination with microfiber cloths in between each shot to get the water, the water, snow, things off my lens to get a sharp photograph, of course. And then another important thing I'm going to mention that I notice a lot of street photographers do, it comes down to style, is a lot of street photographers shoot completely wide open. They'll get a lens that shoots down to like most of them, the lowest people will get is like 1.4. They'll shoot down f1.4 and you'll get a real soft image throughout the scene. Like you won't have sharpness throughout the entire scene. I like to shoot my images at like f2 or f2.8. Just try to retain, make it easier for myself rather to maintain sharpness from front to back of my scene. Because as you know, Pam, if you looked at my photography, I like to maintain the detail in the architecture. Because the architecture detail is as important to the photograph as the moment, as the person walking through the scene for my street photography, if I'm speaking about that. So I think having a good lens can go low enough around F2, but don't stop it down all the way. That would be my best tip. Stop it down around F2. Try not to get motion blur. So make sure you're shooting at about 1 one twenty-fifth of a second, usually at the lowest, if your subject isn't moving that fast. And then having a really good camera like a Sony will benefit you in low light to not have as noisy of an image. And I will let everyone know I've been shooting with an A7R three since 2017 when it came out. That's what you see the majority of my photos is with an A7R three. And I still use it to this day. I never upgraded once. Still using the R3. It's just, it's perfect <laughs> for me at this moment. I could upgrade if I wanted to. I don't need to. I treat my camera like my baby. It's creating the same photos it created in 2017. So I'm just going to keep using it till maybe it breaks or something or something really, really amazing comes out. That's awesome. Well, if you find something that works, I think you should just stick with it. And that camera, it seems it yep. does really well in low light, like high ISOs and all of that. I mean, it's yes, just, that's really important. It's really beautiful. I would say my ISO yeah. for my shooting is around like ISO 800, up to ISO 3200. And I don't really have to shoot in any other extremes because I try to put my subjects under bright lights. So yeah, my ISO range is about that and Sony handles it really well. So I didn't hear you say anything about a tripod. <laughs> this is all handheld, right? Yes. So mainly I was speaking about my street photography, but if we're talking about cityscape photography at night, uh, yes, I would use a tripod. I use the heaviest tripod possible. I use a really heavy geodos tripod i used to lug around the heaviest geodos tripod i could get and the heaviest like 
I had like one of these tripod, you can see me on video. I don't know if anyone else will be able to see me, but just this very large Geodos tripod head that's made for like video. I was carrying it in my bag. It had to weigh like 10, 10, over 10 pounds, this thing. So just a very sturdy tripod. That was important to get really sturdy, steady cityscape images. And whenever I'm shooting cityscape, if it's very windy, I also like to sit the nose of my camera onto a ledge, even with my tripod when I'm on like a rooftop or something, just to get my camera still as physically possible and as low to the ground as I can, I guess. That'd be kind of my trick for a cityscape. (laughs) All the magic is coming out. Little tricks of the trade. (laughs) Yeah, right. So speaking of getting up on the rooftops and all these kind of things, how do you go about deciding when and where you're going to shoot? Are you scouting during the day? Do you have some locations or some... I know like you often shoot with like a theme in mind or, or at least, you know, at the end of maybe a whole body of work, you've got a theme that has emerged. Like for example, the, the work on Soika is, you know, a lot of the buses in, in Toronto and stuff. So how do you go about deciding when and where you're going to shoot? Yeah. Themes are really fun. If we were speaking about starting with rooftoping, I think that was very spontaneous. I spent like, two or three years I was really addicted to rooftoping and I captured like a really large body of my work from rooftoping and it was very spontaneous and the images that you've been seeing lately that I've been releasing into my kind of like I call it like my free-ish mint collection where it had one subject was like the very important thing in the photograph I would go out with one person and myself and it'd be very spontaneous we'd probably start in the afternoon while it's still daylight and look for buildings that looked interesting and looked for buildings that maybe had interesting perspectives of the city and places. And it just, this wasn't something that like happened overnight. A lot of these images were created over like two or three year period, this collection, that's kind of how, and then I pieced it together and made it into a cohesive project that you're seeing now where people might be seeing it like, Oh, he just captured this in the last week or something. But no, it took me years to, really put together this body of work. It was a lot of, I would say, backbreaking effort and amount of time to create some of these projects. Some people think they come together very quickly, but it was definitely a lot of work, a lot of spontaneous exploring. It was really fun, exciting, could be stressful at times because it's not all completely legal what I was doing at that time when you're exploring rooftops, but I loved it. I loved every moment of it. But yeah, it was mostly just, yeah, exploring and very spontaneous, to be honest. Just like walking around the city, how you would with street photography is very similar, but you're like just trying to go to different rooftops in different ways. That's awesome. Do you have any special rooftop stories you can share? (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll I'll share a fun one for everyone. I may as well. Uh, It's been quite a few years past since I've done this now. But if anyone's rooftop before the top of these skyscrapers, there's a mechanical room and then a rooftop. And the mechanical rooms are extremely noisy. You can't hear anything. It's just loud sounds of machinery and elevator rooms and stuff. And I walked into the mechanics room and the security staff were sitting there having their lunch. They didn't see me. It was like dark with a little dim light in this area. And they sit there, they're eating their lunch at like a table. So I walked by them like in a corridor next to them it's like hum of like machines you can't hear anything i walked right by walked up the ladder hatch and i went straight out the roof and closed it 
without anyone like knowing I was there. And then went out and took photos <laughs> and just continued what I was doing. Let them have their lunch, but without anyone knowing I was there. It's nerve wracking, but you got to do what you got to do to get the photograph sometimes. I like to think I'm not harming anything. I'm just going to take a photograph. I'm not there to bother anyone. I'm just there to create a beautiful image that hopefully others can be inspired by. So <laughs> I like to think I'm not doing anything wrong in that sense. Sounds harmless. <laughs> I think photography is pretty harmless, yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I can almost see that scene in a movie, you know, like the, the photographer <laughs> yeah. tiptoeing behind. This must have been before a lot of closed circuit cameras and stuff where they could see who's coming at every angle or whatever. But that must have been really heart pounding. Yeah, majority of buildings, there's cameras and elevators, lobbies, things like this. But once you get to a stairwell and after that point, there's usually the normal buildings. There's usually nothing. So. I want to tell our listeners, don't try this at home, but. <laughs> yes, it's usually, it's not really, it's definitely more than frowned upon, let's say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Did you ever get in any serious trouble for doing any of your rooftopping or other antics? No, never been any serious trouble, but I have had run-ins with security and things like this, but I've always been let go with small tickets, things like this just trespassing tickets, things like this, but never had any serious run-ins where they, they care too much about you. Luckily, Canada, or at least Toronto, for the most part, they were pretty nice to me. <laughs> Being a That's photographer, good. they kind of, I think, understood <laughs> what I was doing. So, yeah, the worst is was trespassing ticket in my few years of doing it. So far, so good. Well, you got to have some kind of badge of honor, right? So before we go on, I wanted to hear about how you got into NFTs, but first of all, your handle Tyler's journey. Is there any story behind that you'd like to share? It's a cool story. It's a cool name and it sort of makes me wonder where it came from. Yeah. So I actually, I started on Instagram, I guess like 2011, 2012, like right when Instagram came out and then I renamed my Instagram account. My Instagram account was named something else. I honestly don't remember at this point, but before this Tyler's journey kind of birthed from my big move maybe i named it before toronto i think it was actually my first move when i lived i lived in california for two years i lived in los angeles for two years before toronto it was like my first move out of my small city i grew up in thunder bay like a small town in ontario canada and i think i changed my handle to tyler's journey right around that time just because it was like my first kind of big adventure out of this small town because i grew up in a smaller city it just kind of came to me i guess just one of those things you're just saying words to yourself and it kind of flowed and and then i just changed my instagram handle one day because i had a really silly sillier username than my one now my one just i don't know just clicked to me and then i created it that's awesome it's kind of that's about awesome. my travels i guess so and it's kind of stuck ever since yeah and with all the traveling you're doing now i mean it's it i think it fits perfectly so how did you make the transition into NFTs? Was there anyone that helped you along the way? Or can you remember any of those early stories about how you made the, the transition over to selling your work as NFTs? Yeah, well, actually, I first learned about NFTs through Nolzi. He's a street photographer from South Korea. 
he was making YouTube videos really, really early on about NFTs, like before many people were minting NFTs, to be honest, like pretty early. And that's what initially piqued my interest in NFTs because I used to love collecting things as a child, like Pokemon cards, uh, stamps, coins, literally anything I could collect, I would as a kid. And then just over time, you don't have these things anymore, you know, and then you start moving around and you have no place. And now I'm traveling so much. NFTs just made sense in our new digital world. We can collect art and things like this and bring it with us everywhere and share it with other people. Whereas if you're collecting paintings and all this stuff and you don't have a home, you don't have like a full-time home, what do you do with it? It's gone. It disappears. So I thought NFTs were like the future. So I kind of just buckled down full-time on NFTs. I'll tell a really fun story about, so I had no means or no money to mint NFTs. So I didn't know how I was going to mint my NFTs. I knew it cost money. I knew it cost crypto. I knew nothing about crypto. I found a random game exactly like Pokemon Go you know, like a game for your phone. It was called Coin Hunt World or something. And it allowed you to earn Ethereum and Bitcoin in this game. So I was just walking around playing this. This isn't an advertisement for this game, by the way. This is random story. So I played this game for like three months straight or like two or three months, like early, early spring of, I guess, what is 2021 now? Probably January, February. I played this game for like three months. I'm like, oh, okay, I have to get some sort of money to mint my photos because it's so cool at that time it was like during the pandemic i had no money to mint photos and i finally got enough money to mint these photos and this was back when on foundation it was like 200 dollars to like mint an nft it was crazy so i think i earned like five six hundred dollars in ethereum and bitcoin and stuff and i transferred it all to ethereum of course started paying my gas fees i paid my gas fees on OpenSea, and started minting nfts and things like that and that's kind of that's kind of like how I started. And I think the person that helped me the most is Teaksels. I'd love to give Teaksels a shout out. He's on the team for 6529 Memes. He does ev- he does everything for like the meme cards. And he was actually the one to give me my first foundation invite when that was like a really rare thing. He knew me for 24 hours. 24 hours he knew me and gave me a foundation invite. He just saw my photography and he's like, this is amazing. I have to like He said some sort of power told him to give me this invite. So he gave me a foundation invite and I started minting almost like right away on foundation. And he was like, kind of got me kickstarted and we've been best friends ever since. And we talk every day. I probably talked to him an hour ago. (laughs) That's so great. That's great. I remember back to those days when everyone was vying for those foundation invites and, you know, it was, Mm -hmm. it was precious commodity, wasn't it? That's really cool. That's a great story. Yeah, it was very rare <laughs> to get foundation invite. It was very tough back then. I don't know if a lot of people it remember was. now, but it was so hard to get a foundation invite. It was like impossible. <laughs> I'm just going to explain to the audience how it worked. So mm-hmm. anyone on foundation had to sell an NFT in order to get an invite. And then once you sell an NFT, you have one invite to give to someone else. Then it continues, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And everyone thought that that was where you had to be to sell your work. But as you've shown, (laughs) you've got hundreds of collectors out there. And one thing I always hear from photographers is the cool thing about being an NFTs is you can make those personal connections with collectors. I was just curious if there's any collector stories that you have or any, I mean, you know, like just heard about Tixels and all this, but have there been (laughs) any really special collectors that stood out to you along the way? I guess I'm just going to go with the top one on top of my head. 
because uh, it's fresh. I would say a tree lion is like one of my really like pretty early collectors. He's collected just numerous, numerous amounts of my work, but it was, it's more like beyond like what he's collected of my work. He's actually a surgeon as well. I haven't told much of my health story in the, in this interview yet, but in the past I've heard it. So I've gone through like dozens and dozens of surgeries over the last several years in Toronto from my appendix bursting inside of me to having sepsis from that and lots of other surgeries from that. And then being diagnosed with a brain tumor a little while after, and then him being a surgeon as well and getting him introducing me and talking to him about all these like health related things that were really personal uh, to me and him being able to help me through a lot of these things, like with friendship and things like this. Like when I was going through a really hard time, I think that's was like the most important thing about being able to meet him in this NFT space. And we've, I guess, maybe over a year or something, year, maybe two years now we've known each other. Um, and we keep in touch as much as we can. He's a super busy guy with a family of like, four or five children now and he tells me all about them all about his life and everything that's going on with him and yeah we just became really close after he collected just one of my pieces of work so I would say like the connections you make in NFTs are probably the most important I've probably made maybe stronger friendships in the NFT space and like the web3 community that I made in my real life in like a very long time so I think that's what I love most about being here. And that's why I spend all my time on like Twitter is from these connections that we get to make. That's awesome. I've, I've seen so many and heard so many stories that sound very similar to that, where it's just the friendships that you make while you're, you know, either posting about your work or sharing other people's work or finding each other in spaces are really just so personal and real. Those relationships are very real. Like you said, you, you showed up to Turkey and started meeting these amazing photographers there that you probably already had met on Twitter. Mm -hmm. So tell me about your Burn to Redeem editions, or is there anything new that is coming up for you that, that you want to give us a sneak peek about? Yeah, definitely. So for my Burn to Redeem editions, if people aren't familiar, I started like a season one of like Burn to Redeem editions where they're all scenes. We have scene one to seven so far. The first scene was released completely for free. 10,000 of them were minted. And then scene two, people were able to get like the next one for free. You minted out the first one, you take 10 of them, you burn them and you get the second one for free. And then we repeat that process. And then the third one, the first one, about half of them got kind of botted. So the third one we released for $1. And then we're able to get them in the hands of a lot more collectors this time, which was really, really exciting. And then after that, you basically burn a certain amount of that and you get to go to the next scene. And we're kind of growing it kind of like a film and you kind of continue the adventure with each new photograph, which has been really, really fun. And at the end of each scene, I'm rewarding all the collectors, like the top three collectors get one-on-ones from each scene, whoever collects the most. I think that's just a really fun way to reward everyone for taking part. And I think the newest thing, if everyone that's been following along with this is 
each piece has between been between one or two dollars to mint. I wanted to keep it super, super accessible, but still avoid getting bought it out. Because if you do a completely free mint nowadays at my level, it'll just be hit by bots and it'll go to secondary right away, which I don't really want. So I'm keeping it around one to two dollars so I can actually get it to actual collectors. But I'm thinking I'm going to try to do lots of promotion and I'm going to do a free mint and do it wallet limited and try to get it in my collector's hands. So be on an eye out for my next scene going to be free. So I have a free scene coming very, very soon. If anyone wants to join the journey that might have missed the free scene one, I'm going to have a free mint coming to join this project. And season one of this project is going to be about 12 scenes total. And we're at scene seven now. So it's just, yeah, I'm pretty excited cool. to be able to include people for free. It's just gas fee and that's it. So right, it's just a right. way to be able to share my art with the world, um, be able to inspire people through photography in just like a super accessible way and just have more people be a part of my community with me. Part of your journey. <laughs> That's exactly. really cool. I try not to overuse my journey oh, word, but it's, it, it's fun. <laughs> part of it, it's, you got to own it. Uh, I understand. It definitely works um, though. It works very well. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, are these scenes going to be part of your current travels that you're doing now based out of Istanbul or are they, have you already shot them? Like how much, how much of this is, is fresh, is going to be freshly Hmm. created? So season one is going to be entirely Toronto, which is scene one through 12. It'll end at scene 12. It's going to be entirely Toronto based, but I'm not going to reveal anything. But once I start with season two, which will be the second season, kind of similar to what they're doing with meme cards. They release different seasons. Uh, season two will most likely be another location. So, All yeah. right. All right. Well, we're going to have to follow you. You can follow Tyler's journey on Twitter, of course, and, and Instagram, sounds like. I spend most of my time on Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> it's a Same. crazy thing to be saying. <laughs> but So, yeah. Well, um, I really appreciate you talking with me today. Of course, you've got some work on Sloika, um, Transit Chronicles, by Tyler's journey. There's only four of the original 20 one of one pieces left. So if anyone is listening and wants to uh, to take a look at that, you can find it on Sloika. And I loved those shots that you took of all these like bright red buses and the Toronto transit is, is really beautiful. I live in San Diego and our MTA mm-hmm. trains are all bright red, but every time I see them, I think of your, of your work, although ours are not covered in snow. <laughs> Yeah, the one thing about those trains that are really special, at least the historic ones, like the older looking ones that you're seeing in the photographs, they were retired from the road in 2019 and just sent to a scrapyard. So you'll never see them on the road again. You'll never be able to photograph them again. So a lot of those images are really special to me because I got to spend a few years in Toronto photographing these older looking trains that were on the road and now they don't exist. We just have these like futuristic kind of bubble looking ones. Like they're cool, but they don't have um they don't have a historic or nostalgic feel of the city at all. So you can't capture the same old timey looking uh, photos. So I'm happy I have these photos on Slika. So yeah. that's really cool. Four of them left. So hopefully, hopefully There's we find four. the last four home. I just want to find um collectors that connect with them soon. That'll make me happy. That's what I'm going for. That'd be awesome. All right. So let's, uh, let's make it happen. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really appreciate it. It's been really cool to catch up with you. I know it's been a while since, 
since we first had a chance to talk, and it's really great to, uh, to have you join us here on One of One. Thank you so much. I'll let you get back to your day, and uh, we'll be on the lookout for, for anything coming from these, the new season two of these scenes from you, and wish you luck on that project. That sounds really great. Cool. Thank you so much, Pam. It's been a pleasure.